We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is Shelley Archambault. She is a Fortune 500 board member, former CEO of MetricStream, one of tech's first black female CEOs, and the author of one of the top 10 business books of 2020, Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risks, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms. What I appreciate most about you, Shelly, is your willingness to share your blueprint and enable others to learn from your successes and setbacks in your lived experience. Welcome to ROG, Shelly. Well, thank you. I've really been looking forward to this, Shannon. Good, me too. So readers of your incredible book will learn more detail, but as a sneak peek, could you share with us some of your background and what makes you, you? Oh, certainly. So I grew up as the eldest of four children and my parents were nuts. They had four children in less than five years. Can you even imagine? So as a result, I grew up very competitive, right? And yet very close. At the same time, my father didn't have a college degree. And so we moved around a lot as he kept taking on new jobs, new responsibilities to support this growing family. Seven states before high school. So when you look at all of those things, you know, it was a very dynamic upbringing. And it took us to a lot of places where, frankly, I was like the only black girl. And I learned very young, unfortunately, that the world didn't expect much from me and wasn't necessarily supporting me. And, you know, you come home as a kid and you say something happened to you and you say, mom, mom, you know, it's not fair, right? This happened or somebody treated me badly or somebody hurt me. And, you know, my mom, instead of just giving me this big hug and the whole bit, she'd say, Shelly, life's not fair. And it's like, but it's supposed to be fair. You get one, I get one. What do you mean it's not fair? And her point was, just because it's not fair doesn't mean that it's not doable. You just have to figure out how to work with basically the cards you're dealt. So I learned early that life's not fair, but I had to decide what I was going to do about it. And I could improve my odds, even though the odds weren't in my favor. So fast forward, I decided in high school after a fateful conversation with a guidance counselor who asked me, do you want to go to college? And I said, yes, because in my family, you are going to college, right? Good grades, go to college and get a job. But it kind of ended there. And she said, well, what do you want to do when you graduate from college? And I'm like, I don't know. I just want to be able to keep my thermostat at 72 degrees in the wintertime, you know, eat out at restaurants and travel, right? These were all the things that I couldn't do and we didn't do. And she said, well, what do you like to do? And I said, oh, that's easy. Clubs. I'm in everything. American Field Service, French Club. I'm even a Girl Scout, but don't tell anybody. And then I like to lead them, right? And so she said, well, Shelly, clubs are like businesses. Get together with people, go after a common mission and make things happen. And I said, done. I like running clubs, so I'm going to go run a business. So literally at 16, I decided I'm going to be a CEO because that's the title of the people <laughs> who ran businesses. <laughs> Pretty audacious and naive, but I made that my goal. And so I literally spent the rest of my career working, making decisions, making choices to become a CEO. And I did. 14 years at IBM. I then worked my way to Silicon Valley and indeed got my first CEO job at 40, built that company into a global market leader. And now I serve on Fortune 500 boards, advise companies and universities, and try to make an impact on this next generation to let them know that you too can achieve what you want out of life if you're intentional, which is why I wrote the book, Unapologetically Ambitious. Yes. And you give us a roadmap, which I so appreciate. Everybody can apply it to wherever they are in their life. And it's clear and compelling and 
it tells your story, which is totally illuminating and amazing. So in college, you went to Wharton and you were among many other African-American students, which was probably a pleasant experience and a nice change. And you learned new music and dance moves and you talk about learning new slang and some new phrases. But then in your book, it says, and this is in the Learning the Ropes chapter, you say, I learned that African-American identity wasn't really about those things. It was about having a shared history of living in and experiencing America as a Black person. Can you tell us, tell us more about that? You know, yes. Because even though all of us came from very different backgrounds, you know, some came from very wealthy backgrounds, others very poor backgrounds. Some people were nomadic and moved around a lot. Others stayed in the same place. So there are experiences were such that you could say, well, gosh, are we all the same? The answer is no. Do we all listen to the exact same music? No. Right. Do we read the same things? No. Do we like, are we the same? The answer was no. But what made us connected was the fact that the rest of the world treated us the same. They treated us the same. So we had all been in situations where we had been discriminated against, where we'd been underestimated, where we weren't given opportunities, where people treated us badly. I mean, we all had that shared experience. And it's that shared experience of growing up in America treated as a Black person that actually connected us and still does, which is why, you know, walking down the street, if I see someone Black, we'll nod. Well, smile doesn't mean I know them, but we do it to say, I see you. I see you as a person. I see you as someone who understands the steps and roads that I've taken. So it's that connection that really pulls us all together. It's the shared experiences that we've had. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that makes so much sense. I think it's also a reminder to everyone to understand that when you're grouping people together in, in any stereotype form, you're ignoring the individuality and the uniqueness and the richness of each individual person rather than lumping them into a group. And so one benefit, it sounds like you have something in common, not necessarily a it's not a positive thing. So later in your book, in, in your chapter on your challenges are your strengths, which is a really helpful chapter for us to think about for our own lives. This is about when you were in Japan for IBM. And there again, I talk about being a minority. You were a woman and an African-American woman in Japan. So a non-Japanese speaking person. So there's a lot of odds. In fact, one of your mentors, I believe, kind of told you so. Like, here's here of the things that you need to have. The one thing that you do have is intelligence. So ride that way, right? <laughs> exactly. But then you talk about how you were so prepared and it reminded you of something that your parents taught you. So to come back to them, there's so much that your parents, I think, taught you and, and the kind of foundational skills and the things that they offered. Um, so it says, this experience reinforced my parents' message. Being in the minority doesn't have to hold you back. In fact, it can be an advantage. The hard-won lessons you learn while meeting life's challenges, if you leverage them right, they can become your secret weapons. So talk to me about how that difference, how you being who you are could actually be your secret weapon. Mm, you know, it's interesting. It was the Japan experience that actually reinforced all of this, Shannon, because here I was. I, had, I was at IBM. I had risen through the ranks, right? Worked hard, et cetera. But the style and my approach to how I led, to how I communicated, everything else was all colored by the fact that I knew that when I walked in a room, people were going to underestimate me. I knew that they were going to assume that, you know, I'm probably there for reasons other than my competence, right? 
I knew all these things I knew because of what people said, you know, the slide comments, the looks, I mean, you know. So therefore, I developed the leadership style of being a servant leader because I knew I couldn't be autocratic. I couldn't walk in and say, okay, do this, do this, do this. People are like, who are you, right? Titles don't, don't matter. So I've learned that if I really focus on making the team around me successful, then I would be successful. And I learned that by helping others, right, being supportive and helping, that that actually was a great way to build trusting relationships with others. So let's just take those two as examples. A lot of other things I learned too. But if you take those two and fast forward to Japan, when I showed up in Japan, you're right, I'm a minority. I mean, not only am I female and in Japanese, everything's run by men back then, for sure. This is the late 90s. I'm also a tall woman. And I happen to be for the times. I'm a young woman. I was in my mid thirties and the people who reported to me in Japan, my direct report, he was probably 60. Okay. I mean, just to give you an idea. And on top of that, I'm black. So no, I didn't fit in at all over there. So, okay. But I did what I always do. I walked in, I tried to figure out, okay, how do I help? Where are the problems? What are the hurdles that I can remove? How do I help the teams to be successful? And how do I communicate in a way, right? That's effective, et cetera. And all of that, that focus of, all right, my job is that, right? Not to lead, not to dictate, not to drive. And so as a result, I was actually pretty successful very quickly, very quickly. And that's when I realized, well, you know what? When I compared to my peers, who for the most part had always been in the majority, everything they did came with them. Right. When they walk in with the title of blah, 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 people assume, okay, right. They've got it going on. They've got things happening so they can lead in a different way. Well, guess what? Doesn't work when you're minority and they've never been a minority. So being a minority was a strength. To this day, I tell people of color and women, if you get a chance to do an international assignment, do it. You have more skills than you realize and it will actually be an advantage for you. When we come back, Shelly will share her thoughts about imposter syndrome and what to do about it. Hello, I'm Joe Panfield, President and CEO of the T. Howard Foundation. We fulfill our mission to increase diversity in the media industry by offering college students paid internships with major media companies. As a result of their internship experience, nearly 200 of our interns are hired every year in communications, marketing, and even on-air talent. For more information about our program, visit t-howard.org. And we're back with more from one of tech's first black female CEOs and author of Unapologetically Ambitious, Shelley Archibald. So let's talk about imposter syndrome, because even though you have overcome that so many times, here you were again in Japan with all of those cards stacked against you, so to speak, and you still thrived. So talk to us about imposter syndrome. Well, first of all, Shannon, I have dealt with imposter syndrome my entire life. I still do, which frankly is ridiculous. Okay. Absolutely ridiculous. And what I learned in doing some research you now around when I was writing the book is just what you said. Just about everybody suffers from imposter syndrome. So what that means is it's not me. It's not you. It's in the air, right? If everybody has it, it is in the air. So if it's in the air, it's kind of like TV, right? Comes across those airwaves. And what do we do? when the TV shows scary things. We tell our kids, oh, don't be scared. It's not real. And if they're still scared, we'll turn the thing off. Well, guess what? That imposter syndrome, that voice in your head that's saying, you're not good enough. 
what makes you think that you can do this? Wait till they figure out you're not as smart as they think you are, right? It's the whole voice that's going, what do you think you're doing here? That voice isn't real, people. Turn the thing off, right? Turn it off. And if you can't turn it off, then remind yourself that the only time you feel it is when people are offering you something new, a new job, a new role, a chance to present, join a club, you know, whatever it might be. Well, guess what? They wouldn't offer it to you. They wouldn't invite you if they didn't think that you deserved it, that you should be there. So if you can't believe in yourself, believe them. And then if that doesn't work, Shannon, my trusty always go-to is fake it. Fake it. Act like you know what you're doing until you do. Because guess what? If you think about it, everybody listening, think about this. You always figure it out, right? In the end, you always figure it out. So give yourself the benefit of the doubt. Act like you know what you're doing until you do. Because at the end of the day, Shannon, what it's really about is building your courage muscle. And, you know, people think courage is something you're born with. Oh, they're so courageous. They're so courageous. Guess what? Nobody's born with courage. Mother nature makes sure of that we are a flight animals because we cannot protect ourselves. So if nobody's born with it, then people who demonstrate courage have built that muscle. It's just like doing curls, right? Or leg raises or whatever. You're building muscles. You got to exercise it. So build your courage muscles. Take some risks. Step forward. Realize that when you do it, it doesn't kill you. You aren't going to die. So it's really okay. (laughs) And the more you do it, the stronger you get. And the more you'll do it again. And before you know it, you're able to take risks. And studies show people who take risks actually achieve more in their career and more in their lives. Yes. And that not all risks are a sure thing. I think inherent in the description of the word risk is that there is a possibility of failure. And I think that your stint at Blockbuster is an example of that. It's in part four of your book called Swerve, so appropriately named. (laughs) And it's about in 1999, how you were at Blockbuster and you were confronted by or you were invited into a conversation with Reed Hastings from Netflix. And after eight months, you left. And one of the quotes that you have right here says, sometimes you come upon roadblocks, you just can't move. So you need to go around them. Could you share with us a little bit about what that was like for you to be at Blockbuster in a meeting with Netflix, you being the visionary that you are, seeing what's possible, knowing that that's not a decision they were going to make, and then saying, this just isn't for me. Oh, yeah, it was tough. So first, let me just set the context. I had left IBM to take this job as president of Blockbuster.com. 14 years at IBM, risen through the ranks. I'm now at the point where nobody above me looks like me, right? My boss reports to Lou Gerstner. I'm I'm running a multi-billion dollar division. I mean, I had done well. This wasn't like something was wrong. I just didn't feel I was truly going to have the opportunity to compete for a CEO spot at IBM. So that's why I left. So moved my whole family from Tokyo to Dallas, Texas for this new Blockbuster job. And you have to remember, Blockbuster back then was a behemoth. It was a Blockbuster store on every single corner in the US. So I'm thinking, boy, this is perfect. I'm going to build the whole dot-com internet business for Blockbuster, right? Terrific. And then Reed Hastings and I meet at different conferences and things. He comes out the Blockbuster pitches. Let's take Blockbuster, the brand, Netflix, the technology, put them together and go conquer the world. And my boss says, no, no, that ever turns into anything, we'll just buy it, right? And I'm thinking, oh no, oh no, I've just moved my whole family across the world to Dallas and this isn't going to work. And this was pretty short-sighted on my part because guess what? There really isn't anything going on from a technology standpoint in Dallas, Texas (laughs) back in the 90s. And I'm thinking, oh, so I'm going to have to work my way to Silicon Valley. My daughter just started high school, right? We just settled in. I'm going to come home and say, guess what? We're moving, right? No. So I ended up having to pay the price. I commuted 
to Silicon Valley for three years so my family could be more stable. Was it a mistake? Yeah, it was a mistake. Now, did I learn a lot of things from that stint? I absolutely did. And that's the key. The key is we all make mistakes and mistakes are fine as long, as long as you learn from them and you don't let them stop you. And the reason that chapter of Unapologetically Ambitious is called Swerve is because we have to look at our careers and realize that we're going to hit roadblocks. We're going to hit stumblings and hurdles and obstacles. Absolutely. There is no path that is smooth. But the key is just like when you get in your car and you drive to the grocery store and you come across a construction zone, guess what? You don't park your car and say, well, I guess I have to sit here until they're finished fixing the road. No. You don't turn around and go back home. No. What do you do? You figure out another way to get to the grocery store. Well, listen, we need to be doing that with our careers. You figure out another way of making it happen. And that's what SWERVE means. You go under, you go over, you go around. If you need help, get help and push that thing out of the way, right? But don't let it stop you. It's interesting, uh, Shannon, because you look back in history and you say, oh, Blockbuster was so dumb, right? The answer is no. History is full of stories like this. You know, IBM could have bought Microsoft software for like $50,000 and passed, right? You know, IBM could have bought Xerox, right? And passed. I mean, why does that happen? It happens because at the time, right, you're generating a lot of profits, a lot of revenue. You have shareholders that count on you. And there's this company that has zero revenue, a little technology and an idea and I'm going to pay how much for what? And why would I do that? I mean, so you have to realize history is littered, littered with decisions just like this. So what do you have to learn from it? What you have to learn from it is back to risk-taking. What stops people from doing these things is they see the risk as being, oof, too high. But what they fail to look at is what's the risk of not doing it? What is possible to happen? And what could that mean to us then later? So I think that's the big message. Yes. Ah, thank you for that. So- In your story about how you're now commuting to California, you're commuting to Silicon Valley while your family is in Texas, it reminds me of a lesson from your mom, I believe is where it originated, where she talked about how it's not a sacrifice, it's a choice. And she spoke a lot about trade-offs and and the whole apple pie and horse. We're just going to tell listeners, read it and learn that because it's just it's just too too amazing <laughs> to, to describe right now. So it's not about a sacrifice. It's a choice. Please, please unpack that for us, because I think that is so profound. Yeah. So this is an area that I'm super, super passionate about because people talk all the time and they'll say, oh, I made this sacrifice or I made that sacrifice and all too many sacrifices. And, and frankly, I have a big challenge with that word. And the reason I have a challenge is to me, a sacrifice is something that you do completely and wholly for someone else. You know, you sacrifice for someone else. Okay. Well, when you do something completely for someone else, number one, you've actually given away all your power, all your power. Because now they're in control of you because you're doing everything, if you will, for them. Number two, that person that you have sacrificed for can never be thankful enough, can never be grateful enough, can never show their appreciation enough. Why? Because I sacrificed everything for you. And yes, you said thank you. And yes, you said that many, ah, right? So what happens is it builds this like tension over time. So no, don't give away your power and don't play so much guilt, right? Other parties realize every decision you make You own, you own it. 
And by owning it, you take into consideration how it impacts others around you for sure. But at the end of the day, it's your decision, your choice, you own it. You know, and the example I'll give you there, Shannon, is I commuted. I mentioned when I left Blockbuster and worked my way to Silicon Valley, I commuted for three years to Silicon Valley. I could have easily said, oh, I'm doing this for my daughter. She just started high school, right? Don't want her to change high school. So I'm making this long trip. I'm staying in a crappy hotel room. I'm doing all this stuff for my daughter, right? aren't I a good mom? No. If I were to do that, how do you think she would feel? The pressure she would feel that, oh my God, because of her, her mom is flying away every week, is doing this, do it. I mean, the pressure to then perform and do well and be the perfect daughter because I'm doing all, that's ridiculous what that would put on her, right? Is that fair? No, it's not fair. I own the decision. I didn't have to take that job. I could have done some other things where they've been ideally what I wanted to do. No, but it's ultimately, it's my choice. So what I tell people is make choices. That way you keep your power. You don't place undue pressure or guilt on those people around you that you care about, and you're able to move forward. So that's why I say make choices. Don't make sacrifices. And that's the other thing that I think was a strong thread throughout your entire story, the importance of communication. The importance of having a plan and being mindful of what you want and going for it, but also that courage to communicate openly about what's working, what's not working. So I think that it's just that openness and that communication is really important. And what you're saying here in this chapter about forget work-life balance, and it's around this whole conscious choice piece and what you want to pass on to the next generation that you say these words specifically, you don't have to apologize for being who you are and making the choices you make. You deserve the chance to shape your life the way you want and to celebrate and enjoy the life you've created. Your destiny is yours. And if you move forward without shame, you can keep every ounce of your self-respect while attaining what you desire. Yes, I really do believe that. So much of the time, we are living up to other judgments, other judgments, and especially as women, but for everybody, the world will judge us on everything, absolutely everything. And therefore, if we rise to that occasion, okay, I'm going to be judged on my career, my education, where I live, my quality of my house, the cleanliness of my house, how my kids look, how my husband looks, how I be judged on all these things, whatever it might be, it's exhausting. And nobody can do all of that. So we have to decide individually, what are we willing to be judged on? And that's really what I'm trying to get at when I say, you make your choices, you decide the life that you want to live. And in order to do that, you have to decide what you're willing to be judged on. Let the rest of it go. My daughter, and I talk about this in the book, but my daughter was born with really thick curly hair. All right. And the best way to make her hair look neat is you brush, you comb and you braided it. No problem. I've been braiding hair forever. Had my husband, six foot two, former athlete, big hands. Had he ever braided? little girl's hair? No. Did he have to learn? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because in our family dynamic, we both had to be able to get our kids ready for school. So as Kathleen's getting ready to go to preschool, Scotty's trying to learn how to do her hair. And guess what? She leaves the house looking pretty jacked up. Okay. For like a good six, eight weeks because parts are crooked. You know, one braid's thick, one braid's thin, one unravels by the time she gets home. And I know for a fact, Shannon, that people would say, look at her and think, where is her mother? How could they let her out of the house looking like that, right? Did I care? Nope. I was not willing to be judged on it because that's not what was important to us. What was important to us is my husband had to learn how to do her hair and Kathleen was four. She doesn't care how she looks, all right? So at the end of a couple months, he's got it down. She's looking great, right? It all works. Everybody's fine. Nobody was harmed. Nobody was harmed. So I tell people all the time, listen, decide what you're willing to be judged on. 
focus on that. The rest of it, let it go. Life is too short. Yes. And I imagine you had to remind yourself of that often with the choices that you made. They were difficult choices. You and your family, communicative as you were and as in sync as you were, you knew what you wanted, but I'm sure that others didn't get it and thought, Shelly, how could you? Or Right? I mean, you had to overcome all of that scrutiny. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Every step of the way. I'll never forget. Now you have to roll the clock back. Now it's not so abnormal, but back in the 80s, all right, I'm working for IBM. And we just made the decision. Scotty's now staying home with the kids. And I'll never forget one of my coworkers and I moved into, we moved into a new area. So I'm meeting people for the first time. And somebody asked me what my husband does. And I said, well, now he, you know, he stays home with the kids, blah, 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 blah. And this was an older gentleman. Well, a few days later, we're, I don't know, meet up at the coffee area or something. And he says to me, you know, Shelly, my wife and I have been talking about your husband. And I'm like, what? We've been a subject of conversation? He said, yeah. He goes, I just, I just don't get it. Really? He's just home with the kids? And it was, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, right? So every step of the way. And then poor Scotty, you know, back to again, being home, we moved to Dallas, Texas, into an area where most mothers, and it was mothers, were stay at home. And there's Scotty, and it's Southern and, you know, just everything else. And it was really hard for him to kind of get connected. And yet, when he finally did something like my son's uniform was whiter than anybody else's uniform, <laughs> right? That's when he finally broke in and the women started right, embracing him. It was really funny. But yes, all along the way, you know, the choices we made were ones that I'm sure a lot of other people wouldn't make. And you know what? That's okay. We're living our life. They're living their lives. So please live your life. Decide the life you want and live that one, not the one that everybody expects you to live. Excellent. Yes. Thank you. That's so helpful to hear and really important to know, especially from somebody who is as accomplished and as respectable as you to say, you have had to go through this, these social hurdles. And when the people who know you the most judge you, that's, it sounds different than the people who don't, they have no idea who you are, what you stand for. Right. And so you, you, you put it in perspective. Yes, absolutely. They don't know you, so they don't have the right to judge you. So don't accept the judgment. So Shelly, what is one of your favorite quotes or a quote that speaks to you at this point in time in your life? Mm, the one by Shirley Chisholm, which is, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. That's right. And you have modeled that so well in your career. So where can people find you and your book and follow along with your journey? Uh, Shelly.com. S-H-E-L-L-Y-E, unusual spelling, dot com. They can find me. They can find links to get the book. The book's available. Good news is everywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, right? Local bookstores, wherever you shop. And also follow me on social media. I try very hard to put out things that are impactful and inspirational because this phase of my life is all about impact and inspiration. If I'm not impacting something or somebody or inspiring someone or somebody, then I'm not doing it. <laughs> and it's a wonderful place to be right now. I've been very fortunate because I've been able to achieve the goals and aspirations I set for myself. And now I just want to create an environment which other people can do the same. Because what I've learned along the way, Shannon, is it takes more than ambition and hard work. You have to be strategic about what you're doing. You need to be intentional. You have to communicate. You have to tell the universe what you want so the universe can help you. There are just so many things that I learned along the way. And right now, I'm just trying to share them all, which is why I wrote the book, because I was trying to share at scale. 
you know, be helpful at scale and stay tuned. I'm trying to figure out other ways to do that on Shelly.com. Beautiful. Well, you have made a massive impact with your book and your presence and today in this conversation, and you are an inspiration. So thank you so much for sharing your gifts and talents with us. Thanks so much for having me. ROG takeaway tip, how to apply what we've learned to our own work and lives. Shelly shares her roadmap, advice, and lived experience in her new book, Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risks, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms. So our first takeaway tip is to buy it and learn more. Let's think about what we can do in those three categories. Take risks. What's something you know you need to do but haven't? What's holding you back? What are you really afraid of? How can you look at the decision in the inverse? What's the risk of not doing it? The definition of risk is a situation involving exposure to danger. So it makes sense why we avoid taking risks. However, what's the danger in not taking that leap? Break barriers. What's something in your life you really want? Like a stronger relationship, greater financial security, better vitality and health, career advancement. And what's in the way? What are the barriers to your success? As we heard from Shelly, sometimes we are the thing in our own way, our limiting beliefs and self-doubt. Identify the barrier and develop a strategy to knock it down, go over it, or as Shelly said, swerve. Success on our own terms. What do you really want to experience? What role do you ultimately want to achieve in your career? If you're already there, what does your lived experience and struggle inform about what's next? Define success for yourself. Most of us haven't clearly defined that. Take a quiet moment and ask yourself, what do I envision when I think of my own success? Who am I with? What am I doing? How do I feel? What do I want to experience? What role do I want to play? Get really clear Then create a plan and accomplish it. Be unapologetically ambitious. So until next time, take risks, break barriers, succeed on your own terms, and stay generous, everyone. Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.